Hey guys, Bryce here from Flex Cortex. All content on the Flex Cortex podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not a substitution for medical advice from a qualified health professional. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. What's happening, guys? Welcome to this week's episode of Flex Cortex. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my coach, Eric Baguera. For those of you that don't know Eric, he is heavily involved in the education side of Prescript, and he is also a contributor to Barbend. Today, we'll be speaking about some of the fundamentals of hypertrophy training and some things that you can implement into your own training, whether you're a coach or whether you're just looking to improve your lifting overall. So there's a lot of great takeaways in this episode. If you want to follow Eric on Instagram, it is at Eric Bugera, so at E-R-I-C-B-U-G-E-R-A. But then I will also toss in his link tree if you guys want to follow him on social media or if you want to check out any of his coaching services. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoy. So for those of you that don't know Eric already, um, what is your professional background or your educational background? Uh, so professional background, I always like to lead with the fact that I, I still qualify myself as a personal trainer. It could be in-person, could be online, could be virtual, whatever this world now demands of us. But I'll always like stand on the on the back of the fact that I'm, I am and will always be a personal trainer. So I am trying to help as many, primarily gen pom, but I can handle the broadest of the broad spectrum of clientele base as possible. But I am trying to be as successful as I can and help as many people as possible under the designation of, designation of personal trainer. All respect to coaches, to clinicians, to everybody. I know my lane. I want to stay in it, and I really enjoy it. So, personal trainer is first and foremost. Uh, academic or educational backgrounds. Um, I am a NSCA certified personal trainer as well as CSCS, so strength and conditioning specialist. Um, I do draw on the CSCS for certain goals, like I mean, like yours, in terms of trying to help you get stronger. But primarily, it's uh, something that I help add clay to my skill set for being just a trainer for the masses. But more so the academic thing is usually what people want to hear a little bit more about because it is quite expansive relative to like just certification. So I have an undergrad in kin, like kinesiology. I have a second undergraduate in human nutritional sciences, as well as my master's degree in kinesiology as well. So exercise science. Effectively, I, I just kept going back to academics as like this platform to give me better and better skills with which to serve my clients, my audience at this stage, because now I'm sort of dabbling more in an education space as well. But effectively, I kept one foot on base in education for probably a good solid decade worth of time, while also trying to stay active in training to get the best of both worlds. Yeah, because you, I mean, obviously, the biggest thing probably is the the master's in kin. But I know that you also have done quite a bit of schooling in the nutritional side of it, which is obviously cool to have that especially for um just labs in general but do you actually do a lot of nutrition coaching or no absolutely not um there's been (laughs) a handful of people like yourself included right like you have a you have an actual nutritionist you have a professional at this handling your nutrition side um i have a degree in human nutritional sciences which allows me on a very personal level to go full send and train myself nutritionally is the best but there's still certain defining criteria to actually be able to legally in certain cases and in others, just ethically, in my opinion, be able to hand out meal plans or give people more advanced or deep advice on how they should be approaching their own nutrition. Because a lot of people don't realize that when you start to enter that world, you're starting to account for 
micronutrients, macronutrients, metabolic adaptation, sports performance, overall health. What if they have any kind of disease state that you're unaware of or unaware of how to actually properly manage in conjunction with their physical goals? It becomes this big web of things that I think a lot of people that their primary exposure to using nutritional information is just this allegedly they perceive them as being this apparently healthy, fresh out of the box, 20 year old that wants to be a bodybuilder. And they're like, here, macros, chicken, rice, and broccoli. Let's go. I'm a nutritionist. Whereas the reality of it, like if someone comes to me for a meal plan, I get an anxiety attack over, oh God, what are their preferences going to be? Do I have to give them recipes? Like, like the way that like you, Bryce, body by Bryce would get anxiety over a new client being like, okay, God, I have to get so X's and O's over every framework piece of their program to give them the best possible service. That's the way I look at nutrition, the same way I would obviously look at programming. So that's why there's an entire profession of people that went through a dietetic internship got the degree, did the whole thing, did placements, understand the clinical settings as well. That's their realm. For me, it's effectively, I took the degree, realized how little of it I could use my practice aside from like general, like knowledge questions, maybe dabble in some suggestions for macros, AKA eat more protein. Don't be afraid of fats, get your fiber, stuff like that. Like the big rocks, portion sizing, anything beyond that, like the more you know about most things, the more you realize how much you either don't know and by extension of that, how much you probably shouldn't be dabbling. Nutrition usually isn't something you want to dabble in. It's something you want to be able to go all in on. Yeah. And so it's not something that I can confidently, no, I shouldn't say confidently. I'm, I'm pretty confident with it, but ethically and with my experience level for most people, I shouldn't be still dabbling with. I should go all in. And so without those proper uh, deeper levels of education, I'm not really going to be doing, offering those services. So did you, did you help much with the nutrition stuff through Prescript, like through the courses that they put pumped out or? So for those, for those listeners to the Flex Cortex, Cortex podcast, uh, I'm heavily involved in the Prescript collective. And before we got our hands on Dr. Uh, Dr. Dwayne Jackson, as well as uh, Phil Smith, those two like legendary nutritional uh, educators, like I leaned on to the fact that I could do these very principally driven like touch up points, nutritional advice, stuff like that, helping to correct people whose conversations are going to start dabbling in nutrition anyways, like start correcting them on course, either with the actual facts of how it works from my degree, or also trying to keep people within the lines of what they should probably be doing within their scope of practice. Yeah. I was able to use it somewhat in an educational context, but it was always with respect to, even for me, like, if I'm teaching people about what their scope of practice is, I was always still trying to respect my scope of practice as well. Um, I should say that I also have a uh, sports nutrition certification through the CISSN, which is one of the higher level ones you can have as well. So I lean on that for like supplemental questions. But this, the absolute second that we had Dr. Jackson, Bill Smith come through, I was like, defer all questions there. Our knowledge, our answers in a lot of cases may overlap significantly but it's a matter of professionalism. It's a matter of scope of practice, sort of contextually handing the questions to the people that should be handling them in case something deeper than my superficial knowledge arises. Yeah. And I think that's, well, it's an ongoing talk, right? About just trying to stay in your lane and like just stay in your scope. Cause I think a lot of trainers just try to cross that line. Cause like end of the day, like most 
PTs, like personal trainers, aren't going to be physios. They're not going to be like chiros. They're not going to be like massage therapists. So we can't definitely like diagnose anything. Um, But I know that we can, like, I know for my clients, and I'm not sure if it's the same thing for you. I'm sure it is. Like I will write up just some stuff that I think it could be that they can take to like a massage therapist just to kind of give them like an idea where to start. Um, Just based off of like, just briefly analyzing movements in like our session or taking them through like a quick screen. But end of the day, it's like, Hey, you're the one that went to school for this. Like you, you take this. It's like, it's like you probably with backs or it's like um, me with like some RMTs that I trust. Right. Just knowing when you can actually like hand it off to somebody else. And then that's, that's all, you know, being able to trust the community that you're a part of um, and making sure that you can actually have a network of people because that's, that's a huge thing that's important. I think that a lot of coaches don't try to prioritize that. Yeah, it's this fear that if I defer to another professional, my value may somehow be decreased in the eyes of the client that I'm trying to help when the reality is like, as you put it, I've done the same where I'm like, hey, insert physiotherapist. Like, I think this is what I'm observing. It might be something to do with this, but I'm going to defer to your expertise. Let me know if you need anything on my end, any more context. And I'm sure on your end as a trainer too, you've received either questions from clients, other trainers asking for your expertise where they're like, yeah, I think it's this. And really fast with your level of expertise, you can look at the problem and be like, yeah, you're on the right track or no, absolutely not. Let's just ignore everything you just said. It's definitely not that. And that's the risk you take when you're someone that is like you're, it's the fear of being rendered obsolete, the perceived fear of being rendered obsolete rather. Yeah. And then overstepping, it's like you could be confidently incorrect and then do more harm than good, which is the internet, which is a lot of things in the industry. It's like that confident incorrectness that puts people at risk in their career. Yeah, it's a matter of being just trying to be really careful of what you're putting out for content too. That's like a topic for a different time, but like just trying to make sure that what the content that you put out is also within your scope because you don't want to be putting out content that is way outside of your scope because then when people ask you, it's like, well, they expect answers. Um, so you got to make sure that you're not trying to like appease to the wrong audience or appease your content to the wrong audience, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So apart from obviously, like we mentioned Prescript already, so apart from them, what are some things that you're currently also involved with as far as like education or et cetera? So primarily I do online coaching, like personal training coaching. So it's, it's effectively programming. It can be uh, technique coaching through voice notes as I mean, you've experienced that with me a lot. Yeah. It's, it's basically just converting any sort of full one-on-one in-person experience now to the online platform that it's not uncommon. Most people are doing that at this stage. So that's the major leg of my own personal side of my business. Uh, I do some freelance writing through, or not, I guess I should, it's contracted. Shouldn't say freelance. Sorry guys. Contracted writing for bar bands. So basically in a, in a similar way that I have discussions with trainers or my own Instagram content, taking topics that they hand me and trying to make it as useful, actionable and educational as possible. But the key is scaling it to the audience that you're trying to communicate with. So the bar band audience, um, primarily those are going to be the three prongs, like my personal side of my business, which is just the programming meat and potatoes writing content for barman and then interacting uh with the pre-script community either through the collective or through labs those are the major prongs that i got going on right now and how's uh how's all that been been going how like how long have you actually been with Barbend doing that for them barman we're kind of coming up on a year in maybe a month or so um okay been going well as far as i can understand like i'm always super paranoid that my stuff sucks at all times for everybody. And like, that's like a huge driver of my neuroticism with anything I write with anything I do. 
is the presumption that uh, I'm getting pats on the head as opposed to genuine praise. Like it's my own like internal neuroticism about it, but it's been going well. Like the, the amount of articles they're asking if I'm comfortable uh, submitting per month has gradually gone up. The amount of creative freedom they're giving me has gone up, which is both good and bad. Like I have interactions with my editors where it's like, this is an absolute hit go team. It's basically going straight to print versus, Hey man, you forgot this entire prong of what we probably would want this article to cover. Can you please write that in as well? Like it's, it's, it's a growth process no matter what. So it's going really well. And it's just at any point in time, I'm always self-conscious of like, okay, this can be one of those really good ones where it's like straight to print or like today, the one I'm right, the one I was writing leading into talking to you today, like, Oh boy, this is going to take some edits. It's going to take some time on the back end to make this useful. Yeah, but I'm sure you enjoy it though, because you were you were heavily in the education side and uh, like good life too, right? But then now that now yeah, you're doing the education yeah. stuff to Prescript, that was probably my first actual uh, exposure to helping educate, like more in a formal sense. I was always like helping my colleagues around me, like with questions or just advice. But in a more formalized sense, like being part of the Good Life Fitness uh, education series, the education um, like personal training sort of aspect, it was my first exposure and dovetailing that like it's always about how do you take your specific knowledge and be able to distill it and translate it in a way that's actually digestible and actionable for who you're talking to so like me talking to a fresh bright-eyed bushy-tailed personal trainer me sending it out into the void for unknown readers for barband that i have a general gist based on how we write within the confines of barband articles like who the audience is but like hope that this is useful for them all the way to talking to the savages within the pre-script community that are like, if I don't answer this right, someone's going to come for my skull. Either the other coach and the coaches on staff or like at a certain point in time, Bryce is going to have the balls to just step to me and be like, yo, actually, <laughs> like from your own experience, you're going to develop the ability to start calling me on my own bullshit. But that's motivating. And that's, that's like, and I think that that's a good thing, right? If you're, you're constantly having to challenge the way that you think and the way that you program and like um it's funny because one of the trainers is he's now working at mobility now but he was doing his practicum there before and um i'm trying to keep the mentality when i'm with my clients now of like thinking that there's always going to be like a little practicum student walking around with me so that way if we're doing something you're actually able to explain why you're doing it and have like a thought process behind it and not just be like well because I'm the coach. <laughs> exactly. And like the talk that we have like lightly queued up is hypertrophy related. And like, that's basically how I always, that's how I always set up all of my programming, especially around it, because you get the most fluidity and freedom when you're trying to just build muscle. Yeah. But it also can look very random to an untrained observer. So being able to have either from a client or an outside observer, the, the childlike 10 whys in a row, having an answer for everything you're doing to the deepest, the deep level. That's something that's like through my academic side, that's how I first got exposed more so to the mechanistic side of hypertrophy through my, my master's degree. We studied it, yeah. but also just my personal like preference on training clearly as biased towards hypertrophy training as well. That's something that sort of got ingrained in my skull is how it can be very, very fluid and useful to many people outside of like this very rigid parameter. But if you just look at a piece of paper and you don't know those things or you see someone training, it can also start to seem very, very random. So as you said, you have that 
that practicum coming through and you're like, okay, I better be able to explain this set and rep scheme, this rest period, this very casual lightweight or heavyweight or whatever I'm implementing right now. Yeah. Be prepared for all the whys because I, I've, he was, he's, he's good. And he was very like eager when he came through. So it was lots of like, Oh, why, like, why are you doing that? Why would you do this over this? Like what made you place this in the workout at this, at this point in time. Right. Which is yeah. good. Cause then it, it makes you question your own programming or, it makes you alter some things, which is fine too, or, you know, it just kind of deepens that thought process. And I think a lot of it can be too like autonomous sometimes. So it's good to be able to actually challenge with it, you think, and then like, you know, in, in tune with that, just enhance your own coaching skills. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess on the topic of hypertrophy, since you mentioned that, um, so what are some of your favorite modalities to use when like a client comes to you with hypertrophy being their main goal? Um, I think the biggest thing is helping them realize like proximity to failure. Yeah. Cause that's, it's, it's very, it's become widespread, much more well-known that like, while there are, and I think terminology is what throws people a lot, um, yeah. mechanism or primary driver of et cetera, et cetera. Like a lot of those words get thrown around a lot lately because the industry at large is getting smarter. It's going up, but the interpretation of what those things means and like the absolutism behind certain terms, like mechanical tension or even if we just distill it to tension is the primary driver of a hypertrophy response the muscle developing peak tension an involuntary slowing of the contraction speed because you're hitting the wall on effort that is the thing almost regardless and universally that will cause the hypertrophy response and you can get there through many different means the confusion comes from when you start to apply different phrases like okay the mechanisms of hypertrophy are going to be mechanical tension metabolic stress and muscle damage and then people start to have a short circuiting in their brain or you start to throw in volume or you start to throw in different methods of understanding rpe having people experience out the gate that unifying sort of stimulus of peak mechanical tension peak tension if you want to just remove mechanical from the peak tension within a muscle so they understand the end goal of any set regardless of set rep triggering mechanism which is what i would like amend the previous statements to so metabolic stress mechanical tension or muscle damage the triggering uh mechanism huh. it's all normalized by getting to that tension that peak slowing of involuntary slowing of your contraction the peak effort within the set so having someone take an exercise that either is extremely uh mindless it's very easy to perform without skill uh or something they're already very good at and actually take them to the wall because most of the time when people get close to failure, it maybe because that's the other prong of this conversation is you can see significant hypertrophy benefits way farther away from failure than just like zero to one RIR, one rep in reserve or like one rep away from failure. You can see tons, especially if you have a young training age, tons of gains way farther away than that. So people might be lingering in this further from failure sort of range, still making gains and not really realizing how far they are. So take them to the wall on something that is either easy to perform or they're good at. So they have a better approximation of what effort really is for you, at least that exercise. And then they can start applying that across the entirety of their workout and just build the intensity or build the quality of a entire training program off of that experience alone. Then you have the freedom of having a better understanding of how volume and tension or volume and intensity are related the triggering mechanisms of using more load-based uh, uh, methods versus more metabolic accumulation-based methods, the pros and cons of each. You have a better idea of how and when to use those. 
knowing that the end result that you're driving towards, regardless of all those pieces of, of variables, will be that end of set tension that you're trying to get. Lots of words there. Any follow-ups, buddy? No, I think the, think the biggest thing to keep in mind with that is that it's all about stimulus, but like effective stimulus, right? Um, I think, and that's how I wanted to have you on today to talk about hypertrophy, because I feel like hypertrophy itself can be like so generically understood, but I feel like there's a lot of variables to consider with it for people to get more effective with their own training um, or to get more effective with just the time that they spend in the gym. Cause I know people like chronically just spend way too long in the gym. And I know like that's generally me. Cause like my compound stuff just takes a while. Um, but I know like people, especially people are like more on a time crunch. They're trying to get in and out of the gym more efficiently and effectively. Like it's important to consider a lot of these variables when you're wanting to actually train. Um, and instead of just being in the gym, like hammering volume and not getting actual stimulus, but like driving it mainly off of like sensation. Um, so I'd say from that, it's like, should the client focus more on like initially when they're first starting out in like with the, with the training program, should they focus more on load initially? Or would you think that they should focus more on like it trying to apply different variables first and like methods first? Yeah, I think it's skillful execution is yeah. the thing. And it's going to be variable between exercises and muscle groups. So you have different methods of getting to that point of tension that is like a meaningful stimulus, as you phrased it, which is really, really a solid way of phrasing it. But each individual person, each exercise, their skill within that exercise is going to have, it's going to play a role in which approach is best for them to take to get to that end point of tension. So if I have terrible proprioception with free weights, mm -hmm. but it's the only thing that's available to me, I should probably linger in a, a lower load, higher rep range because there's a lot less spillover. There's a lot less lost tension across a bunch of different muscle groups from body English, loss of position, synergist and stuff like that. When yeah. I suck at something using a slightly lighter load than if I were to pursue like this golden, like six to 10 to 12 rep range using a higher load that might just be a garbage repetition all around. So I think what their skilled execution will allow is a good place to landmark what set and repetition range is a good starting place for them. And then beyond that, it's understanding that like, you don't just rock up to your workout and be like one hypertrophy, please. Like if I don't do everything exactly like this, I, it's, just, it's either I got it or I didn't. Yeah. So your movement or like your execution quality, your intensity, actual true proximity to failure, and a ton of other variables, they all exist on this like continuum of optimal hypertrophy stimulus and recoverability, junk volume and garbage, and you're just sort of wasting time and just hanging out in the gym. If you land anywhere in between there, that's a pathway of progression that as you get better at training, as you get better at everything, or as you just give literally, call it the laziest version of programming ever, but just linear progressions, you will slowly start to normalize that effort closer and closer to the true peak or optimal hypertrophy stimulus by virtue of just slowly shoving them towards that spot. Mm. All the while, they're still making gains. It might not be as optimal or as fast as if they out the gate were able to do a flawlessly executed one rep in reserve on every single exercise with the exact flawless amount of rest, repetition, sets, effective, blah, 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 blah. Like that's, that's all great in a vacuum, but depending on the individual, their skill across all the exercises they'll ever have to use, 
place them like dead center in the middle, somewhere useful, somewhere effective, and then even just using micro progressions, like literal arbitrary, okay, next time you're doing two more, next time you're adding five pounds, next time you may add a set, have a framework for how you apply those, but just slowly shove them. So they're still making gains over a long period of time, allowing the adaptations to occur and focus on movement quality. Once you get to the end goal of like very, very highly effective uh, max out sort of programming, circle them back and allow them to reset with better technique and just restart it over and over again. Like it's like inbound hypertrophy based periodization in that respect almost. But I think that's a, a major flaw is that it's true of a lot of training modalities. It's like uh, the powerlifter that wants to do their first meet only when they can hit a certain total. It's like everybody wants to be so flawless in everything they apply into a program or in their execution that they miss the fact that the training is the thing that will get them to actually be able to uh, do those things. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Cause I know some people are like that too, where they, they're like, well, I would compete, but like, I want to make sure I can total this before I can compete. And it's like, well, that's under like totally ideal circumstances though. Right. <laughs> well, exactly. It's what I said about like, okay, can I flawlessly execute this free weight? If free weight is all I have. Maybe not. So my entire plan is out the window. What if I bomb out on squats, even though I know I can total that 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 first meet total that I was aiming and I was holding back all my experience for until yeah. competing? What yeah. if you bomb on squats and then it never happens, right? Like, yeah. And it's like so many people in different goals. It's like just human nature to have these like to play these psychological games with yourself. But yeah, the reality is just go do the thing and have your best laid plan, and then be able to adapt to the circumstances that you find yourself in. Yeah, a good thing to run off with that is like I actually had a client who competed in April and like two days out, he got like a stomach bug. So yeah, like, this is like this is like a perfect example, right? Like peaking actually went really well. Like he was hitting some pretty good numbers going in, got sick, was hugging the toilet for like a day. probably, And then like two days out, super dehydrated, right? Super low on his on his water, his weight dropped off. And then he went into the meet and we're like, okay, we're dropping your openers. I'm like, even though like, I'm like, you definitely have the strength for your openers that we had planned before, but like, we're dropping your openers. So that way we can secure you actually like being on the board because yeah, like stuff like that just happens. So that's why I thought, I thought it was a good example because as much as you can plan to be successful and plan to have a good like first meet or like a good meet in general. There's a lot of variables that you don't have control of and like getting sick, like two, three days out, or I don't know, let's say you slightly tear your adductor like a month out or something like that. It's like, well, there's a lot of things that you had don't have control of. So end of the day is kind of have to go in and like hope for the best. <laughs> and that's the thing that you'll notice, in, especially across hypertrophy training is that there's a fluidity of being able to, in your case, like, Okay, we need to drop that opener so we can secure the bag and guarantee that you actually get to, to compete today. Hypertrophy training, like the best laid plan, really, if you were going to, like what most people would perceive as a lazy program would literally be like, you're going to do three sets of this, one, zero to one RIR, three minutes of rest, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, four, maybe five exercises on a day. Do that with four different workouts a week. There is one hypertrophy for you, buddy. But like the, the reasonable nature of humans wanting some form of novelty, some form of adherence through enjoyment, some form of anything that is not just that, like that in a vacuum was very good hypertrophy programming. I told you to take it to the wall on three sets or four exercises across your body 
that's more than enough tension, presuming flawless execution and you have flawless ability to scale that RPE to the higher higher uh, tiers. But that sounds like some nonsense. Yeah, it sounds like that sounds like, and maybe it's me pulling on my experience as a like frontline personal trainer and being like, I've been on the floor during peak hours and having my best laid plan completely upended because everything I need is taken. Or even in my programs with certain people where I'm trying to have a little bit more structure, and I'm like, hey man, do three sets of ten because you know, sets across are inefficient, but it allows for progressions. Do three sets of 10 RP eight. So like two RIR, whatever, zero to two RIR, whatever, go with that, right? Yeah. Whoops, I underloaded it. Guess I'll make no gains today. Well, the true, again, the normalizing factor was take it to the wall, get it to that RPE. That's the the unique, uniqueness to hypertrophy training is the ability for it to self-correct in the moment and see next to no real negative ramifications. You can make the argument that you're incurring more fatigue I would make the argument that people are not as fragile, like in the same, in the same breath that not everybody needs to deload every three to four weeks, doing higher rep work or doing more volume or accidentally doing a set or two of junk volume is not going to be fatal to someone's gains. If you underload and you go from a set of 10 to maybe a set of 15, but you hit the end of goal intensity, you're all good, man. And that's the beautiful nature of doing hypertrophy for the average person, for most people, most of the time in most contexts you can adjust on the fly for anything that might be getting in your way. It could be lack of implement, it could be lack of time, it could be lack of like mental intensity, like you're just bagged on the day and don't really want to do it, but you want to make your gains. Yeah. Because the alternative is also possible, also useful, take the day off and just come back when you're better prepared or it's a better situation. But it also doesn't diminish the fact that you can make some serious progress and have fluidity to your programming in the same breath as having fluidity of your training frequency or your schedule for people that are in real life situations where just kicking the ball down the the road and just bag this workout. It's not optimal. Let's just do it on a day where it can be more effective. Yeah. That's not always the case for a lot of busy people. So get it in when you can, in the way that you can, you'll see a ton of your progress with very little lost, uh, lost gains on, on the cutting room floor. That's the beauty of my yeah, so just because like RPE and like RIR is so subjective, um, it can be tough to teach clients what actual effort is from what I've experienced, right? Um, just l- teaching them how to actually like quote unquote try in a session. And I always find that people will generally always like undershoot their RPE. Um, or like undershoot the perceived effort just, and, but then base it off of like a higher RPE level. So like, I'll always be like, Hey, how'd that feel to you? And they'll be like, Oh, probably like a seven. But then like, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, it's probably like a four. (laughs) Um, so with your clients, like, let's say your clients are a little bit newer. Um, what do you use to gauge effort with those clients? Cause I know like RPE can be kind of difficult to gauge sometimes for them, especially being like in an online space where you're not with your clients all the time. Um, but what, what do you utilize if not RPE and not RIR? So a couple of things there it comes down to the magnitude of progress and expectation management. So getting videos helps significantly. I think both of us have experienced that where you're able to coach up more accurately, give better feedback with videos. Yeah. But in online space, not everybody cares to take videos myself included i rarely if ever take videos when i train anymore because i can't be bothered in a commercial gym so again pulling back from the idea that everything has to be in this perfect like pedestal of within these parameters see gains just do progressions 
So use volume as a surrogate for intensity or volume as the surrogate for effective repetitions. And it will never be as optimal as that, but it'll be more optimal than what they were doing. And it will be progressive overload by virtue of doing more, doing uh, increased frequency, doing any re reduced rest. It's not as optimal as like landing in that pedestal of perfection, but yeah. it's better than what they were doing and sees them make progress. And then when you see them stall out, it's the same as if you saw them stall based upon load or any other reason, you just yeah. reset, you start the staircase again. So one, pro one prospect is just expectation management on the part of like a coach, also matching it with the, the engagement level of a client and just know that you can do literal progressions and they'll make their gains. But another thing is also understanding that, especially when you're starting with newer clients too, which is like sort of the context I'm running with right now, like RPE, pain tolerance, effort, it's all relative to what the hardest thing they've ever done in their life is up until that point, right? Yeah. So you as a coach and resistance training as your, as your methodology, you are now the thing that will slowly increase their understanding of what RPE and RIR or just pain tolerance, proximity to failure, all those things actually are through yeah. experience period. So couple those th two things together, chaining together a couple blocks of the same exercises with, even if it's just progressions that you're implementing, like today we're doing three by 10, next week is 12, 10, 10, 12, 12, 10, et cetera, et cetera. Here's another set, your RPE just went up, stuff like that. Yeah. Chaining a couple of blocks together like that and allowing them to improve their skilled execution and then have you slowly whisper in their ear, try harder. As they get better, likely that's something that they'll be able to get closer to true failure because their ability to perform the exercise went up and in absence of having like a stabilizer or loss of position or technique stop them in advance, yeah. they'll probably get a taste of what better proximity to failure is. And then it's just an experience thing. Yeah. Okay. So for the first bit, like you'd really prioritize like proprioception, um, creating more body awareness, and then just focusing on like more basic linear progressions by having a slight increase of sets or reps, um, just playing with like the overall volume per muscle group per week. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's true of powerlifting is true. Of, well, like, I don't want to, I don't mean to overstep into powerlifting training, but it's true of strength. Let's use that. It's true of strength. It's true of hypertrophy using load as like the final boss, the final progression, in my opinion, is one of the smartest things you can do yeah. because it's the bottom of the pin at some point or the bottom of the plates, the pins go in there at some point, or there's only so much weight that will fit on a dumbbell or a barbell before it outruns your capacity to use that exercise. Like there is a plateau that you're sprinting towards when you unduly or too quickly start to rely on just load as your only mechanism of, of progression of, of, of hypertrophy. So using things like tempo training, like pauses, underloading mechanisms, exercise order, things that will allow you to make that early progress, regardless of how optimal it may be, elongates the amount of time the person can improve that exercise and yeah. by th thereby improving the amount of time they can utilize that exercise earlier in the workout, different set and rep schemes, adding load slowly but surely, and just have it be present for a legendary amount of time to milk the most amount of progress out of the same tool. Or you just alter things more frequently and give them a handful of things that they can rotate between that are maybe one is a machine variant, one is a freeway variant, one's a cable variant, where they can get general associative skill across sort of the same thing. So we'll call it like a chest press machine, dumbbell uh, bench, as well as like a cable style of uh, press. You give yeah. them a couple different things. They'll keep the novelty, keep them wanting to train. It's similar enough of a pattern that they can get enough of a stimulus that'll still see growth, especially in new, new trainees. Yeah. So they'll slowly 
the concession being this is a slower path, more skill acquisition, et cetera, et cetera. But with that concession in mind, you're giving them the ability to keep scaling, keep building the skill in similar enough patterns where they'll then be able to, again, elongate the runway of using a similar exercise across the board. Yeah, theoretically, there should be more carryover that way, right? If you're keeping the variation of the exercise similar. Yeah, and again, it comes down for the context of the, the population you're training, right? Like for your program specifically, Bryce MacArthur, Body by Bryce, Go Team, you have been doing the same thing, generally speaking, for months on end. And you're like, I've, I, how many times have I opposed to you? Do you want me to change anything? Because I have the capacity, intelligence-wise, to get you to the similar endpoint with something else if you're about to lose your mind. No, we're making gains. Sick. Proceed to maximum. Got it. Let's just, let's go. Here's the same thing. Multiple, manipulating sets, reps, exercise order maybe here and there. Yeah. But you just keep going. For other people... The concession will be obviously like pace of the goal acquisition or pace of the what what have you, but modifications to exercise planning, exercise order, certain things like that also serves for adherence due to people not losing their mind. Because again, if we're in the context of just trying to help people, not everyone is like gung-ho about training. And you can make the argument that people will self-select their audiences or self-select their clientele base to only want people that are super rigid and ready to go and fired up but it comes down to who you want to help, who you want to serve, right? So yeah. it, it is all to say that there's an expansive way of doing this so long as you understand the end goal of what you're trying to accomplish. And then you make concessions for, again, if we rock up to the to the goal of hypertrophy and like this is the pedestal, this is how we gain one hypertrophy in one shot versus this is how we land right in the middle and slowly progress towards it. Yeah. There's a ton of different ways with which you can help people make their progress. Yeah, I, and I like that you talked about order of exercise too, because I feel like that's one thing that's not often addressed enough. And like with obviously order of exercise, you could talk about like strategically low managing by having something later in a workout. Um, it's even something that we've done too, right? Like having certain days laid out differently to kind of dictate how much load you're using for certain workouts. Um, because I know for me, like I like going heavy on deadlifts and you're like, hey man, not so heavy on deadlifts. So like, I know, and just from like, obviously experiencing that myself, right? Like going through it and having myself feel that point of fatigue and realizing like, okay, like I obviously in this scenario would have overshot my load based off of that RP for that day. Um, so then obviously like you see how much carryover and how much impact there is to your other workouts. But then also it's like, okay, well, how is it affecting my other sessions, right? And then that obviously affects the rest of the week. Or if not that, it's like, okay, well, like how are, like you mentioned before too, how's your sleep between sessions? You know, how's your recovery? How's your like, you know, are you prioritizing your protein? You know, are you doing other forms of recovery to try to work on maintaining like a, a good level of health just through the course of the week in general? Like, are you doing any kind of like um, myofascial work yourself, some release stuff? Are you doing any kind of like active recovery work? Are you, are you moving on days that you're not working out? Uh, there's a lot of stuff to consider, I think, with just making gains. <laughs> and that's, that's the exact thing, man. Like, especially in the context of like a new client, commercial gym, gen pop, what have you, even someone that's just new to the training modality, there's a lot of spinning plates that it's going to help optimize the results. Training is one prong, recovery is a huge other prong. And the best laid plan in absence of good recovery is going to be just as, as undercut as the worst laid plan with great recovery. Like everything is always comes down to the law of averages. 
how are they performing on average? How are they recovering on average? And that's the sort of takeaway that you can expect from their results. Yeah, and I think a big thing too that I used to do before, and I think we've talked about it before too, is like thinking that like an exercise has like an expiration date. And that's something that I've realized too, like especially with a good example, I guess, is with my programming with you, is like we have a lot of movements in there that we've been doing for a long time. But I've been seeing steady progression with them, been getting stronger. There's improvements in movement quality, improvements in strength, et cetera, et cetera. So why take it out if there's still like room to still like milk that movement more and like get more from it? Because I think before like the classic, the classic way of thinking, like for me myself anyways, was like, okay, well, um, okay, Susan, you know, we did a front foot elevated contralateral load split squat for your first block. So second block, now we're doing uh, ipsilateral load. So like, I think that whole thought process does need to change because I think you need to just realize too that you can use an exercise for a lot more, um, you know, it's a very multi-purpose. Like you can do a lot with it. So I think that people need to, need to keep exercises in for longer and actually drive more, you know, further variations of intensity and try to actually push the client more. So then that way they can actually see progress with that movement before uh, like preemptively just progressing it because you want to or because you think the client needs that progression? I think a lot of it comes down to training age and then reading the room with the client themselves, right? Like the higher the training age, like a lot of people will um, be strictly adherent to why make changes if you don't have to. Well, because people get bored. I swapped out one of my exercises lately because I was over it. Still making gains, still making progress. Sick. Yeah. But I'm over it, so it got swapped out and now I'm making even better gains because I have actual psychological motivation to perform well because I enjoy it. That's a training age thing, and I would argue that I have an intermediate training age. But that's like a young training age, clearly through intermediate. Spoiler warning, it's everybody. Um, when you burn out hard on something, not everybody is a like strictly athletically minded, do the work, I don't care what it is, as long as I'm making gains, pro athlete level psychology. Read the room. If yeah. someone cool with that, hence my dialogue with you as your coach, being like, hey man, even your pump day, your pump up sort of fucking like accessory. If you missed anything on that Saturday or Sunday, go to your arms, go to your chest, whatever, bring up some lagging groups if you want. You bored of that yet? Like even having that option, having that conversation to make sure that you're going to do the thing is more valuable than just Bryce, put your head down, nose to the grindstone. I don't want to hear any of your bullshit. This is how we make games. Like again, it's, it's the, the understanding that doing nothing or regression is the enemy of progress. That's the thing that we're trying to stave people off against. Everything else is great. You're, you're pursuing improvements. You're pursuing optimizations at an individual level. Yeah. But having the ability to read the room and understand client training age, client psychology, to make sure that they are winning at the end of the day, that's yeah. the real actual job that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you get to the end zone, who cares? Like people like, are people going to come back and audit your program after when you won? Probably yeah. not. The end goal is to get to the end goal. Like, don't do it like an asshole. Don't do no harm. Don't hurt the person. Don't, if you can rationalize your position within a reasonable amount of this isn't stupid, go team. That's my kind of perspective on it. End of the day, it doesn't really matter how you get there. I think it's just more like, yeah, you gotta you gotta realize. I think where your clients at. Um, I think it's something that 
I struggled with too, right? And realizing that they're probably hiring you for a reason because most people don't want to work, especially like in-person people, right? I feel like online's different because if they're reaching out to you in an online space, they're probably more motivated to be sticking to a plan or like adhering to a plan. But I have found generally speaking that most people that want in-person training, a lot of it is because they feel like they really need that adherence and they need that accountability aspect of it. Um, that's something that I, I thought before too, is like, I th- was always programming based off of what I thought the client needed versus what the client wants. So like even recently, right, I've been trying to give clients more stuff that they enjoy um, and basing a lot of what I give them off of like how they interact with me. Um, also just being able to like try to read by how how they act, like are they a little bit more um, emotionally in tune? If they're a little bit more emotionally in tune, then I'm like, okay, they probably you know, like to have a pump when they leave, you know? So like, let's give, I don't know if it's a guy, I'm like, let's give them some arms at the end of a workout. Um, You know, if they're very, if they're very high stress, you know, they're always like working a job where they're, let's say they're working like maybe they're a lawyer or something, then you're maybe putting more emphasis on like the parasympathetic stuff. So um, I think there's a lot of, a lot of power in that of just being able to like modify something accordingly to your client. Um, and that's kind of where the whole like personal training aspect comes into it and being able to actually like coach versus just giving them like, okay, this is uh file one B build <laughs> and we're doing this till we hit the floor. <laughs> you raise something that I think is lost on a lot of new trainers is the fact that people will come to you for accountability. And if we unpack accountability, it's because they lack the personal responsibility or their personal drive at that stage of their own development to do a lot of what they're coming to you to do on their own or else they wouldn't be hiring you. They're coming to you so they have a scheduling, a financial investment, what have you, any form of accountability to actually perform the task that you lay in front of them. All the things you learn in courses, textbooks, like the optimal way of performing exercises or programming or what have you, they're all tools to be laid at the feet of someone that is ready to actually use those tools. If they're coming to you because they need to be held accountable as one of their primary reasons out the gate, as you said, probably scale your expectations and how you're going to present programming and and exercise selection and execution of workouts to the level of the person in front of you. Like everything that you're trying to do, as I said prior, it's like an opt, it's a personal optimization. You do want to slowly kick the can down the road, get them to do things probably a little bit more uh, skillfully, probably a little more optimally, probably a little more, a lot of things. Yeah. But most people are coming to a trainer, they're hiring someone for accountability. So if you give them something super rigid, super boring, super optimal, that's great in a vacuum. That's great if you can turn your back on them and they're going to actually perform it the way that you would expect. Yeah. When people are starting with you, you're holding hands a lot of times. You're, you're walking the person through every step of a workout. You're having to have a high degree of interaction to make sure that they're actually executing what you laid in front of them. Low-hanging fruit, man. As you said, give them a pump at the end of the day, make them enjoy the session, make them more likely to come in for the next one, maybe come in on their own, give them exercises that will get them closer to their goal, maybe not as fast, maybe not as optimally, but get them to do the things that they will actually do to benefit themselves. That's the mentality that more people need to approach their tra- their personal training careers with. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it's something that I've learned over time, right? And I haven't really been even coaching or training that long, like probably just the past three years, but it's being able to like modify things and kind of 
really getting to know your client, but I, I think that's why there's so much emphasis on like initially building rapport or if you did a bad job initially building rapport, reassessing and getting to know them better and being like, okay, well, I dropped the ball. Obviously, when we first met, you know, I didn't take enough notes. I didn't really dig deep enough as to why you want to train with me. It's like, let's talk more now, kind of build and establish that. And then at that point in time too, like just figure out what they actually want to do. And I think that's a lot of things that people don't ask their clients is like, what are some things that you actually enjoy? And then being actually like actively trying to factor that in instead of just being like, okay, well, that's not optimal. Like, no, we're not going to do it. Being like, okay, like you like, you like rows, like you like one, like one arm dumbbell rows. Like let's, let's hammer those in. Let's factor those in and let's like run the, runway progressions until we can't like, let's just keep doing those until we can't do them or just keep them in the mix because the end, yeah, end of the day, it's like all about ad- adherence and trying to get the client to actually like stick to a schedule. Yeah. I think that a lot of people will take their courses or take their, um, their schooling and whatnot. And once they get out of those contexts, they still think that they're constantly being tested on the content or the application of the content where practical application is literally absorb as much information from all sources around you as you possibly can and synthesize it and utilize the things that are relevant, actually useful at that given point in time for that specific person, as opposed to like you mentioned prescript, old man shallows breathing over your shoulder and making sure you chose the right gate sequencing for their gatekeeper or their right split squad variant. No, no, no. It's making sure that you have the knowledge to make those choices when they're most applicable. It's not necessarily to make sure that you're, constructing a flawlessly executed training program and and day by day by day workout under the the phantom gun of someone that you got education or certification from being right up your ass being like well you did it wrong so give me back your certification like no no no, no. Yeah. you're supposed to have an understanding of how to apply these things in the right context that's the real nature of education but like I said, I feel like a lot of people take courses and it's like that ooh shiny effect where now everybody needs to do everything I just learned because that's clearly the way that it was supposed to be interpreted. Yeah. No, you're supposed to do the correct thing for the correct person at the correct time. We offered you more tools to understand what that might be. Yeah. And like, I think one thing that I've talked to the trainers about too, and people always get scared to change stuff in a program. But I think if you're changing stuff in a program, it shows that you're growing and that you're thinking because if you have something laid out and you're like, okay, I'm not touching it. I'm not adjusting it for four weeks. Then that whole mindset needs to change because there are so many variables and so many moving parts that are, you know, inconsistent. So like you kind of have to factor all that in and be able to actually work with that. So, you know, being able to actually take what you got from a course, but apply it, to that client's program and they make modifications accordingly is an important tool. And I do think that is one thing that people need to try to focus on. But like you said too, you don't want to be doing like the, like the shiny approach and just like regurgitate everything you just learned from this course intensive seminar, whatever, and then apply everything. And then your client all of a sudden is like, wow, okay, we're doing something completely different completely new entirely. Like maybe you're not super confident in what you're doing before. And then it kind of almost questions that like initial buy-in. 
Well, it goes all the way back to the conversation regarding hypertrophy and like skilled execution and like making the right decisions for the person based upon either the context of the workout you find yourself in, like what is your training environment? What is the person's capacity to actually do these things? Like if you just apply every new piece of information you've ever learned to everyone immediately, I mean, you might wash some of their progress because they are not good at the thing you're trying to get them to do now, right? Yeah. Even a mid-range exercise, let's use that because those are very in mid-range, right? You can still have someone do higher rep work in a mid-range exercise, even though it wins in a higher loading parameter and still make gains because maybe they suck at a mid-range exercise that might require a little bit more skill or a little bit more internal stability. Giving them time with lighter loads in this mid-range exercise might be the thing that gets them to make more progress, either hypertrophy, strength, skill, whatever, than yeah. going to what we were told is where it wins. And again, that's where I think as a coach, as a trainer, if you apply that mentality to hypertrophy, sick, your cable tricep extension doesn't exist right now because everything's taken over. Well, I guess we're using a dumbbell skull crusher. Cool. Maybe instead of doing like a 12 set, a repetition set for the cable, maybe I'm doing like a 15 to 20 repetition set for the dumbbell because you can't stabilize this that well. We need to reduce the load to something you can. That's the in the moment modifications you can be making when you're using hypertrophy as your, as your sort of field of play because yeah. all the way back to the beginning if we can get you to that terminal endpoint of proximity to failure in yeah. the muscle group we care about more than anything else you're probably making significant amounts of gains regardless of how you approached it yeah it's all about having a plan a but then also a plan b and a plan c especially like you mentioned before about working like in a commercial gym it's like mm -hmm. you run in there you have this fancy template laid out for that day right but you go in it's rush hour it's busy you're like okay scratch the entire thing we're going into the studio to do this workout so at that point in time like if you don't have a plan <laughs> you have to so you just have to be like hey well this is similar position right this is similar stimulus you know you could what i think about too is like okay i'm going to utilize this opportunity to teach my client something new because you're you're teaching your clients valuable skills as you know obviously but at that point in time, you can be like, hey, like, let's use utilize this opportunity not as a chance of like an inconvenience, but a chance to actually further their library of um, exercises and expand their current knowledge base and be like, hey, you know, normally we'd be doing um, this mid-range movement for like chest. Let's say like normally we'd be doing like a chest press, right? But today let's do a floor press. Like, you know, we're going to get similar stimulus here, a little bit more stability aspect to it because we're not going to be on a machine. So and then they try that and at the end of the day is the client going to be like well why aren't we on the machine the client probably isn't going to care especially if they're gen pop they just want to go in there and feel like they actually had some stimulus on their chest exactly like the the anxiety that i think a lot of people have about even to the level of a client judging them or what they're doing is the client doesn't know anything for the most part like you'll get some really really smart ones that want to know why and you should probably have an answer why but you're not being judged on your workouts unless it's completely absurd if it's so superficially absurd, like your choices, and a client that has no experience can start questioning you, you have bigger problems. So if you go from like, hey man, our machine chest press that we is our pet exercise for your A1, I don't know if you can see this, but there's like 400 people in this gym right now, we're gonna go do a floor press. And like, oh yeah, it makes sense because my arms are doing this thing in one, and they're doing the same thing here. Yeah. yeah whatever, let's go get a pump. Like if it, it push-ups. At some point in time, as you talked about, like you might actually get to the point where it's just like, we're going to go do calisthenics and send it. And it's still going to be at least a maintenance value for hypertrophy. Like that's the, 
everything always comes back to how do you normalize the stimulus at the end of the day for the context that you're in. Yeah. And I find too, like if you're at least transparent with that client and you're like, Hey, like, I don't want to waste your time. You know, your, your time is valuable. You've obviously spent money to be here with me. It's like, let's go do something, be productive with our time versus waiting around for machines. And generally speaking, they're going to be like, yeah, for sure. They're not going to be like, oh, well, I really want to wait here and waste my money and wait for the machine. Exactly. So a couple other questions here for you. So what are some of your preferred programming variations that you like to use to drive hypertrophy? So um, for the listeners, I guess examples here would be like drop sets. Um, supersets are a good one. Um, I guess rest pause, let's say like, you know, forced, forced, force reps or ISOs, tempo, etc. Very recently, um, I'm a big fan of using a potentiating set. So something usually a more shortened position for any muscle group. For those that don't know, that's it's joint positioning things. Um, so each, each of your muscle groups has a mid range length, a length, more lengthened range and a more shortened range. So effectively, if you think biceps, like in an anatomical position, generally speaking, my arm at its resting length is as strong as it's going to be. That's one of the strongest positions. If I flex my arm or flex my shoulder up to say a high cable biceps curl position, the overlap of the sarcomeres at the level of the biceps are a little bit less optimal than in that mid range. So you're going to be inherently a little bit weaker, but you're also going to have a better joint sense because everything's already kind of smooshed together. It's going to be easier for you to feel your biceps working to use more illegal terminology. I'm going to feel my muscle working a little bit easier. Using an exercise like that, I'm a big fan of one to two extremely high repetition, high proximity to failure sets because they are not very fatiguing on the entirety of the workout but they are very good at increasing joint sense, increasing like a mind muscle connection or a proprioception, a skilled execution of the next thing coming up. Yeah. So starting someone in an exercise like that before I give them more, maybe more of a mid range exercise where now they have a pump in the area we're trying to actually train. They have a better ability to actually contract the singular muscle group, or at least more so singularly contract that muscle group than before. I like using a potentiating set like that tempo. I'm a huge fan of for the large exercises. If like say a leg press, maybe even RDLs, like dumbbell RDLs, especially where there's other breakpoints than just the prime mover, say the glutes in the RDL or what have you, like your grip could give out, your lungs could give out, your brace. I'm a yeah. big fan of underloading by virtue of tempo and higher repetition sets. Same as the leg press, vicious tempo, high repetition set that by virtue of those things makes you underload it so that we can just week over week claw back one second of tempo slowly peel back two to three reps off your set. And by virtue of those things to get to the same RPE, the load will slowly increase, but we're not just immediately planting the client in a, all right, three sets of 10 RPE nine and a nosebleed on a leg press because that's a real fast way to get them to burn out and hate that exercise. It's like, unless you're a psychopath, like nosebleed level leg pressing, like some people love that, but the average gen popper, it's like, let's get them, to make gains as long as we possibly can before we put them in that position. Yeah. Uh, that, those are two of my, my pet ones, but then even to the degree of like, uh, like the cap exercises at the end, when someone's more fatigued, drop sets are really, really fun. Um, not necessarily because they are the best thing for hypertrophy, but it's just an intensification, right? Like 
when someone is already pre-fatigued, like systemically, like their entire body's tired, mentally they're tired, it's the end of the workout, doing something super high intensity or super strict on only, like, we'll call it the triceps, because it's an easy example, and maybe they're not there for it. Maybe we want to do a pretty a moderate to okay intensity tricep straight bar pushdown into like a banded version and just send them to the to the graveyard on the band because the band is way easier to go high rep on. So where they might give out on low traps or core stability or shoving themselves around on the tricep straight bar pushdown loaded appropriately for that exercise, get them to pre-fatigue, quote unquote, a little bit using that and then give them a band instead and have them go to absolute failure to get that normalizing stimulus at the triceps a little bit where otherwise they may just get like, they're both going to be in some degree suboptimal because not getting proximity to failure truly because something else failed in yeah. terms of the push pushdown is one way of being suboptimal drop sets. Do have a disproportionate, like absolute, absolute failure by a drop set does have a disproportionate level of fatigue, but on something like your triceps at the end of the day, like if it's the last thing you're doing, it's not the worst thing in the world. So it's a give and take on both sides. But it's calling that that play based on what you think that client would best be served by. So things like that, like a good drop set to actually have someone use that as a surrogate to get them to the actual proximity to failure that we need, like using an intensifier like that. Those would probably be my big three in programming. Nice. So I guess for the last example, then, um, if you're using like a straight bar and then you'd immediately be going over into like a banded variation, would you classify that still more as like a drop set or do you classify that more as like a superset? Uh, drop set. Cause it's, just, for me, it's the same exercise. It's just a different implement. Like you can call it, there's probably a specific name for it, like mechanical drop set or what have you. I think mechanical is like a same muscle group, different uh, exercise or different angle of attack or whatnot. But at the end of the day, like to me, a superset is more so pairing different exercises of different muscle groups. Um, drop set would like if, if we went like a tricep extension overhead or something like that, like we absolutely altered it. I might call it a superset, but because yeah, it's okay. the, I would call it more so a drop set with a change of implement. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just cause the similar, the stimulus is very similar. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a faster transition for the most part. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So the first one you talked about, you mentioned you utilizing like shortened and lengthened positions first. Um, could you give an example of, let's say, like a leg, something for quads? Something for quads? Uh, no, not quads. Doing, doing glutes. Quads Quads are just quads. Quads just do quad things. Um, <laughs> like unless you want to do, like, because what is the shortened position of quad? It's effectively a leg extension. You want to go do quad extensions before you do anything else? <laughs> I mean, you could. <laughs> but, like, the thing about your quads is they're primarily going to be involved in a lot of exercises that are just basically full send on your legs. So, like, a leg yeah. press, what? a squat so doing something pre-fatiguing like that even if it's an underloaded shortened position like there's not a whole lot of joint sense that you're going to really need from your quads okay. whereas something like joint sense at the shoulder joint sense at the hips more so than the the region of the glutes and stuff like that might be a little more helpful because they're intimately tied into your torso your core positioning so at the level of the glutes, doing something like a 45 degree back extension where you're focusing on rib cage over pelvis mechanics, really driving with the hips, the glutes to actually lift you, going full send on like a solid one second contraction of the top because we're not overly concerned with loading. We are, we want it to be challenging, but we want more so to get that joint sense and get that effectively a pump going on. Mm -hmm. Using that with the low reach of what that weight is gonna be doing for you in that 45 degree back extension position, will help you get a better 
uh, capacity to contract the glutes, like mind-muscle connection there, joint sense there. It'll also help with your ribcage or pelvis alignment as you would then transition, say, into something like a dumbbell RDL. It'll give you a better ability to stay in like an actual rigid neutral spine, sit back into your hips, into that nature. So it helps you with like the, the first exercise is meant to not pre-fatigue per se. It's meant to potentiate something that you can go way heavier on, like a dumbbell RDL, and make the real get the real meat and potatoes of your gains on your day. More like create more positional awareness and then also just have more carryover as like a prep movement for like a like a primary movement. Yeah, and like a lot of the same things could be said if you did an actual like a structured movement prep. Like that could also be accomplished by doing things like a, war- a series of warm-up drills. But for me, like time constraints, patience constraints, like I just can't be bothered personally. Like I am my own worst enemy. Doing an exercise that likely would appear in my training no matter what, the back extension of the way that I described, instead of having it maybe cap my day when I'm already fatigued, have it start my day. But like, and that's my concession. Like it might be suboptimal for growth in terms of the exercise itself. But instead of doing a movement prep that I wouldn't do anyways and have the entirety of my workout take a hit in quality, Let's have this one exercise that's probably the lowest contributor to absolute hypertrophy, bring it out of its optimal position at the end, put it at the beginning, use it to make the rest of my workout better. I no longer do a movement prep because I hate it. And now my RDLs are kicking ass and I can make some gains there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was just wanting some more uh, context on it for people that are listening because I feel like that's would be classically known as like a burnout thing, but I think it just depends on like the context and the the intention of said exercise or said movement, especially considering like how many reps you're doing, how many sets you're doing, the intensity, right? But I think it's all more or less just to create that positional awareness to get you primed and to focus more on like movement efficiency when it comes to your primary work. Cause you would obviously just have the back extension first for like maybe let's say two sets of like eight. Um, and then you could immediately go from there into, like you mentioned before, like an RDL. Yeah, like the the hit on contribution to fatigue slash hypertrophy that your back extension might have in terms of like its overall value, like you're diminishing the value it's giving to your workout in and of itself for hypertrophy yeah. is wildly offset by the increased amount that that RDL would give you if you suck with torso positioning or actual hip hip drive or hip engagement. Yeah. If you hadn't done the hip extension prior to it, it's, again, it's just another, it's like the uh, more expedient or lazy version of doing a movement prep is just putting something that will accomplish effectively the same goal just through exercise up front first, knowing full well that you're diminishing its value of hypertrophy itself to make something that has a higher total value, the mid range total value for hypertrophy gets improved on the, the back end of it anyways. Interesting. Okay. A lot of a lot of good takeaways here. So I, I do it. I do obviously appreciate you making the time to come on. Because I feel like there's a lot to talk about with hypertrophy training, um, and I feel like there's a lot of good takeaways here as far as like just programming considerations, but then also just looking at different modalities and how to properly kind of like lay them out. But um, I think a lot of things that we talked about today too is like load management, fatigue management. Uh, but then also looking at like exercise placement order. But then looking at how you actually lay your week out. Um, just because I think that's something that people don't often prioritize is like your recovery from session to session. Um, and then also just how, how you actually try to strategically plan your workouts for the week. Um, 
The last thing though would be what are some things you have in the works right now? So like collaborative or just on your own? Uh, I'm pretty much overhauling a little bit of my business side of things, just updating um, price. It's getting updated, but updating pretty much everything as I've been in business now for about a year and a half coming up in two years. So update, updating like the front facing everything, making it look, look a little bit uh, more reflective of where I am now with like the projects that I got going on. Primarily though, it's, it's still full steam ahead on just building my business, grabbing a couple more clients, building that up, increasing my actual engagement on social media to the extent to which I feel comfortable and that I feel like I'm providing value. So trying to have, especially like my audience, I've tailored to primarily be either my clients or new trainers that are absorbing content, trying to understand how to actually implement things. So tailoring my content on social media, try to reach out to them and give them things to think about or to chew on to maybe help reduce anxiety as they enter the field. Uh, working through Prescript is probably the biggest one. Uh, Barbend on the back end, just writing, it's like gonna be a consistent thing, but with Prescript, really hammering on the Prescript Collective, um, building out new or updating the services we currently have, really working on certain things on the back end of it culturally, like how can we draw more of the coaches in engagement wise, have them take more of a spotlight, like really elevate and amplify a lot of the people in our community to give them the confidence to also keep doing that for their people as well labs the whole thing the everywhere I'm, I'm basically everywhere the prescript is at this stage um maybe a course in development maybe like i've been working on things in the back end for me like i have offerings that i would like to put out uh through prescript primarily but it's going to be obviously like as the talk has been today primarily circulating on hypertrophy based training so in a very similar way if people have been tracking like dwayne jackson's presentations on nutrition it would be a very similar framework of that, very academically based that gets digested down into how is this practically applicable through my experience in the field as well, which as you've seen through, if you're listening this far, our entire talk, it's courses, education, degrees, they're all nice, but it all has to be contextualized to what happens in real life. How can we use this information and modify the tools we've been given to actually be applicable to real humans and real situations that you might encounter in the field? So that would be also the way that as I'm building out, say, a hypertrophy course, it's always actionable. It's always how does this actually apply to a real human training other real humans? If this is the pedestal that we're trying to go for optimally, this is all the ways you can shove that analogy I gave about shoving people towards that and still make progress. All told, just giving people as many options to successfully train humans as possible. So that's kind of like where I find myself in the industry right now. And on that note, it's always a pleasure. I, uh, I do appreciate you making the time to come on. Um, I will have your Instagram at the very beginning. Um, so I'll plug your, your Instagram then, but if you want to toss it out here again, um, you can have that in, uh, social media is basically the only, like the Instagram is the Instagram handle rather is the only real thing that I use for, for the most part for my business side, aside from the website. So just my name, like at Eric Vergara. That's how where you can reach out, contact me. I'm usually pretty good about interacting with almost everybody, presuming I have time. Uh, website uh, is ebegara.com. That's sort of the central hub for all my services, a lot of testimonials and just general information about me and my services as well. But yeah, social media is where I hang out. I'm, I'm uh, internet-troll, so I just chill on social media. So if you need anything, that's probably the best place to find me. Thanks again, man. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I'll do this again for sure. Absolutely.